I'm not really a golf fan, and maybe you aren't either, but did you happen to notice that this last week, Phil Mickelson won the PGA Golf Tournament? Now, a lot of people are taking note of it, and a lot of people are making a big deal about it, because Phil Mickelson is almost 51 years old. He's the oldest person ever to win one of golf's major tournaments. And so, in my free time, I just started digging into Phil Mickelson a little bit and reading about him, and did you know that he promotes this special coffee blend? It's called Created for wellness. And a lot of people are getting excited about it right now. Why? Because people want that silver bullet. They want that magic recipe that's going to help them to defy aging. But in reading about Phil Mickelson, you'll know that it's a lot more than just coffee. It's He has a very strict diet. He's got a strict workout routine. He practices all the time. He does mind exercises to help him focus. Yeah, it's a lot more than than just the coffee. You know, we want that silver bullet, that magic recipe, but it often doesn't exist. If you were to take away the diet, the exercise, the practice, and just leave Phil with the coffee, well, I imagine someone else would have won that trophy last week. You know, the Christian life is a lot the same way. We, we want some kind of silver bullet that will make us this mature follower of Jesus, this giant of the faith. But as we'll see from the Israelites, it doesn't really work that way. To really grow spiritually, it takes time. And along with time is exposure to God's word, belief in God's word, and then obediently following and doing God's word over the course of time. If you, remem- if you remove any one of those things, well, your spiritual growth is stunted. It's flatlined, just like for Phil. If you would have taken away any of the exercise, any of the diet, any of the practice, and just leave him with the coffee, he wouldn't have won that trophy. So we'll see as we dive in and follow the Israelites a little further this morning in Exodus chapters 37 and 38. We're going to read Exodus 37 verses 1 through 9. Let's go ahead and check it out. Bezalel made the ark of Akasha wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold, inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of Akasha wood, and overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of, were the faces of the cherubim. So, Last week, we, we uh, looked at chapter 36, and when you end chapter 36, you get the building of the tabernacle. And we saw that the people were over, overwhelmingly generous to give, to see that the tabernacle is going to be constructed because of their desire, their deep longing for God's presence to be in their camp. And so, 
more than enough of these costly materials are given so that the tabernacle can be built. And now as we move into chapters 37 and 38, they get to work on building the furniture inside the tabernacle. All the furniture, all the instruments that are going to be inside, now this is the work that's going to be done. Now, throughout these last chapters, we see the faithful obedience of God's people. But remember, before all that, the people were not obedient. You remember what happened, right? Moses, he's up on the mountain. He's talking with God. And while he's up on the mountain talking with God, the people are down the mountain. Now, the people, they've already been given the Ten Commandments. They've already been given the Book of the Covenant. And they've enthusiastically said, thank you, God. Yes, we're all in. We'll follow this. We recognize this law you've given us is for your good. And we want it. We believe it. We'll do it. Except they don't do it. I mean, they're covenant violators within a span of 40 days. They're breaking these things right and left. Even the first two commands, they break egregiously. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a god of any graven image. And what do they do? Oh, let's get that golden calf. Yeah, let's have that as our god. We'll make him right now. Yeah, give all your gold earrings. Let's do this thing. They violate it all, and in violating it, they break the whole commandment of God. They break the law, and Moses symbolically demonstrates that to the people in the breaking of the Ten Commandments. They were not obedient to God's word. You see, their problem is easy to spot, isn't it? But it can be our problem as well. Yeah, sometimes we can say that we love God's word, we believe God's word, we have exposure to God's word, but do we live it? I mean, that's the question, that, that's the issue for the Israelites. Oh, they've got the law, they've got the Ten Commandments, they've got the Book of the Covenant. They say they believe it, they say they love it, but they don't do it. And that stunts any type of spiritual growth, and the same thing can happen with us. Are we willing to do it. You understand that to grow spiritually, it takes God's word plus belief in his word plus obedience over time. That equals spiritual growth. Anything less and you're stunted. I mean, this is what the apostle Paul would say, right? He would write and he would say, listen, by this time, you ought to be mature. You ought to be eating solid food. You ought to be mature in your walk. But you're still like babies. You're still like spiritual infants. You still need the milk, the foundational aspects of what we believe. This is what I need to be going over with you again. Now, when you have a baby and you, there's this newborn baby and this new life, it's exciting, right? And the baby can whimper, it can cry, it can make these little sounds, it can make messes, it, can, it needs to be cleaned up after, all these different things. But the baby brings joy and excitement. There's, there's just hope with this new life. It's good. The same thing is true with a new Christian. Right? We see the same thing in the scriptures that someone comes into a relationship with Jesus and what happens? There's a party in heaven. The angels are rejoicing. The heart of God is moved because this person now has a relationship with the one true God. Now, in the same respect, if you have someone who is old 
And by that time, they should be an adult, but they still act like a baby. I mean, they make messes and they expect someone else to come behind them and clean up after them. By this time, they should be independent, yet they're relying on other people, still dependent on others. By this time, you know, they should have some type of a filter, but they just kind of shoot their mouth off and don't even think about it. They're unable to follow instructions. They're just always doing whatever they want to do. See, when you have somebody like that, it's not cute. It's not, oh, that's so nice. It's exciting. No, it's annoying. It's, it's embarrassing to the person. It, you, don't, you don't want to be around someone like that because they're an adult, but they're still acting like a baby. Paul says the same thing is true about you and me spiritually. That if we are old enough that we should be spiritual adults, that we have been in a relationship with God long enough that we should be mature Christians, but yet we still act like babies, well, that's not cute. That's not cool. That's, that's not, oh, isn't, isn't this still fun? Isn't this still exciting? You have a relationship with God? No, it's annoying. Why? Because it devalues the gospel. It says, oh, yeah, I love God's word. I believe God's word. I'm just not willing to follow his commands. I'd rather just kind of trust my own logic and do things my own way. Yeah, you haven't grown at all. Yeah, you might have been in a relationship with God for a long time, but you're still basically where you were the day you were saved. And Paul says, there's nothing cute about that. It's embarrassing. It's offensive. It's highly annoying. And the Israelites, they kind of model that for us. Because they have been given the command, hey, God has called them his people, but yet they're not willing to actually do what it is he said. But Moses goes down, he wakes them up, and things begin to change. Now they're saying, hey, we're all in, and they're giving generously, and now they're going to work, and they're building this thing. They're building the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the place. It pictures the presence of God in their camp. And, you know, you get the mercy seat and all that. And they're, they're building this. And it's placed in the Holy of Holies, that special place. They're obedient to the work. And they're also obedient to the work of building the table of showbread. And this table was symbolic of God's uh, provision for Israel. That each day a new piece of bread were to be put on the table to symbolize that God will continually to provide each and every day for his people. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus, he models how we ought to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And there's that line, you remember it? Give us this day our daily bread. Now, a Jewish audience, they would have immediately connected it right back to this. They would have known that Jesus is saying, God, provide for us today. Meet our needs today. We are completely dependent upon you to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So provide for us this day. Everything, total dependence upon him. Yeah, the builders build, they, they build the ark, they build the table of showbread. And as chapter 37 continues, we see that the builders continue to be faithful. They continue working hard. They're going to go and they're going to build the lampstand. And they're going to build it exactly the way that God commands. And they're going to move and they're going to build the altar of incense. And they're going to build that exactly the way that God has commanded. Now, 
Maybe you remember if you've kind of been with us, we talked about the altar of incense before and how it symbolizes the prayers of the priests and how the priests are constantly to be interceding on behalf of the people, representing the people to God. That's one of their uh, purposes, one of the aspects of being a priest. And now as a kingdom of priests, it's our responsibility to intercede on behalf of other people, to pray for people, representing people to God. This is what we do. This is part of our our faithful obedience as a Christian. But this uh, altar of incense all also had a very practical purpose as well. Because the, al- the altar of incense is located right next to the place where all of the burnt offerings are going to be made. And you can imagine just the stench of death that is going to be taking place as all these animals are slaughtered right there on that altar as a sacrifice. And so those priests, they would have wanted all the incense that they could get just to help cover that smell a little bit. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at a a conference for a church in Dodge City, Kansas, and flew into Dodge, and there's this little small airport there, and when you fly in, the way that airport works is there's uh, there's not some like nice jetway where you walk down, you're into like the nice airport. No, you just deplane right there on the ground, just right outside, and when the thing about Dodge that you need to understand is the main industry in Dodge is a meat packing plant. There's a slaughterhouse right on the outskirt of town. And when the wind is blowing, the stench that comes from that slaughterhouse where all these animals are being sacrificed, I mean, it just permeates the airport. It permeates the town. I mean, it was rough. I just wanted to run right back onto the plane because it was bad. I mean, I wish I had some incense with me. It was rough. I couldn't get out of Dodge fast enough. And see... We see in this altar of incense right next to where the sacrifices are going to be made, just God's goodness to the priests. Just this simple, practical aspect of mercy that he's going to cover up. He's going to mask the stench of death as they offer these sacrifices to him. This is just a small example of God's mercy. So from the altar of incense, we move into Exodus chapter 38. And in Exodus chapter 38, it begins with the building of the altar for the burnt sacrifices. You see how these are connected, right? And as as we read about the ark earlier, and perhaps you noticed, and if we were to read about all the pieces of furniture, I'm sure it would begin to stick out. Just the poles that are attached to most all of these pieces of furniture in the ark. Now, why is that significant? Because the Israelites are people on the move, right? They're headed to the promised land. And so God is going to continually move with his people. God is a God who's on the move. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to sit here and camp. You guys just go venture off on your way. Try to get to the Holy Land and come back and visit me every once in a while and spend a little time hanging out with me when you get a chance. No, God's saying, I'm going to be in camp with you. I want to be present with you right in your midst, right in the thick of it all. As you're going, I'm going with you. And you know, we see the same thing today, don't we? That God resides in his people. That God, through the Holy Spirit, he resides within us. He's not just in this building. You know, we don't just come here like once a week and get to visit God, you know, once a week on Sunday mornings. We don't just spend a little time with him every day. God, God, he's not 
about that, he wants permanence in our lives. He, he wants to be a permanent fixture in everything we do. He wants a permanent place in your home. He, he, he wants to dictate how you treat your family. He wants a permanent place in your workplace and how you do your job. He, he, he wants a place of permanence in how you spend your free time and, and what your fun and leisure activities looks like. He wants to be involved in that. He wants a permanent place in, at the dinner table and with your finances and how you act as a citizen. Why? Because he wants to affect your diet. He wants to affect how you steward your resources. and He wants to affect how you relate to your country. He wants to affect all of life. You see, God wants a place of permanence to affect everything that's going on in your heart and mind because he wants all of you. He doesn't want just a piece of you. He doesn't want just a little time that you just to carve out between you and him a couple times a week. No, he wants to affect all of who you are. Why? Because he wants to conform you perfectly into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's not about a visit. He's about permanence. God desires permanence with his people. And we see that just in the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture, that it's going to be mobile because God, he, he desires a mobile sanctuary so that he can forever be with his people. Now we are that mobile sanctuary as the spirit of God resides within us. Chapter 38, it will continue on and the people, they will obediently make the bronze wash basin and the outer courtyard. Now, one of the things that stands out about this bronze wash basin was it's these women who work in the courtyard, these ministering ladies who provide the bronze for this thing. And this is incredible. I, I just want you to see this, okay? Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it reads, He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, these are essentially the cleaning ladies of the tabernacle, okay? These are the poorest of the poor. They're all former slaves, right? Nobody has much, but these ladies, they're the poorest of the poor. And the one thing they have are these bronze mirrors. Now, where did they get those bronze mirrors? Well, they probably got them from when they left Egypt. There's part of the spoils that they were able to take from Egypt. And this is probably their most precious possession that they had. Because you think of it, a woman at those times living this meager life, not having much, just a cleaning lady at the tabernacle. I mean, a mirror where she's able to look and kind of make sure that her appearance is good in the hopes of, of attracting a husband. Well, now she's giving that mirror away for the building of this bronze wash basin. I mean, it's, it's incredible the generosity that we see here, perhaps her most precious possession, and they're just freely giving it. Now, it almost makes you think of David's words, doesn't it? That he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of iniquity. Where are these women dwelling? Well, they're dwelling right near the doors of the tabernacle. I mean, it's, it's incredible. These ladies willing to give whatever it takes to see God's presence in their camp. They realize that this is the most important thing. And so they give whatever they have to see it happen. Now, 
as we kind of step back and we just take a look at where we've been this morning in chapters 37 and 38, and I've just kind of gone through a little bit. And a lot of it is a repeat from what God had told Moses a couple chapters earlier. And now Moses is delivering it to the people. And we see the faithfulness of the people getting to work. And we, we see just, hey, they're going to build the furniture. They're going to build the ark. They're going to build the mercy seat. They're going to build the cherubim. They're, they're going to build the lampstand table. They're going to build the altar of incense. They're going to build the the um, sacrificial table for the burnt offerings. They're going to do all these things and understand each one of these furnishings, each one of these instruments, they're all designed to point forward to the gracious presence that will one day be experienced in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of these instruments are going to be used as part of the sacrificial system. And this reminds the people that as, as they try to draw near to God, that a sacrifice on their behalf must be made, that there must be a substitute. And so there's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's happening over and over and over again. This is the way the sacrificial system works. And every time the people of God draw near, they're reminded, I can only draw near if there's a substitute. We see also that in God's love, he draws near to his people, even though they're sinful, even though they are unholy, God draws near to them. The, the mercy seat, it simultaneously speaks of God's nearness to his people and the fact that they can have no communion with God apart from the blood of a sacrifice. Now, those two things are important because we see right here in the furniture and in the instruments and everything that's going on, it all points to the love and to the holiness of God. You know, today there are, there are a lot of people who they, they want to separate God's love and God's justice or his holiness. They, they want those two things to, to be separate. Oh, I'll take a God of love, but I don't, I don't want the God of, of justice. Um, the theologian Richard Nyberg, uh, he talked about just how wrong-headed that really is. He said this, in liberalism, you have a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Wow. Whenever you try to separate God's love from his justice, you always end up in this same wrong-headed place. You just get another manifestation of twisted liberalism. Yes, God is love, but at the same time, he's a God of justice. And you see both of those things expressed just in the furniture and in the, and in the instruments here in the tabernacle. Because right here, his love is on display in the tabernacle. The very provision of the instruments, it indicates to the people that, yes, I will still come near you. That, yes, I will draw near you. That, that yes, you will be my people. Yes, I forgive you. He's claiming them. He's owning them them. He's drawing near to them. He's given them a reason. You see God's love on full display. And at the same time in these instruments, in the construction, in the making of these instruments, in the use of these instruments, it reminds you that, hey, my people, 
my drawing near to you is going to cost you. There's going to be a sacrifice involved for me to be near you. It's ultimately going to cost blood. And you see that over and over and over and over again in the sacrificial system. Of course, in the end, it's ultimately going to cost the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to cost. See, God takes sin very seriously. There had to be a judgment for that sin. That judgment was meted out on God the Son, Jesus Christ, so that through God's judgment, through the judgment of the Father, he might enter into a love relationship with you and me, his people, but that relationship is entered into in perfect justice. Justice, which has been carried out on God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this section ends with just a note on how much the people bring. You, we, we get this note at the end of chapter 38 about how much material was given. And we've talked about this before, but it certainly does strike you, doesn't it? Just how much these former slaves give and it raises the question, like, where do they all get it from? And yeah, we understand that a lot of it came from their spoils in Egypt. But, I mean, you're talking about wood, you're talking about uh fine yarn and stuff that they're making and there, there's going to be a cost to a lot of this stuff too there's work involved in getting these resources so that they can give it but they're going to pay that cost they're going to do whatever it takes these former slaves are going to give and they're going to give and they're going to give to make sure that god's presence is going to be in their camp and if you to read that last section you got all kinds of measurements about how much they give i just want to summarize it to you from a, a commentator that it's estimated that these former slaves these israelites that they gave roughly a ton of gold four tons of silver and three tons of bronze so that God's presence would be in their camp so that he would be right in their midst. Now, that tells you something about the costliness of sacrifice, doesn't it? About how much we ought to give back to a God who's given us everything. You remember David's words? I will, not I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord that does not cost me anything. Think of these slave people. Four tons, uh, a ton of gold, four tons of silver, three tons of bronze. This is what they're going to give. And they're going to give it willingly. I mean, God said, whosoever heart is stirred within him, let him give. And this is what they give a ton of gold, four tons of silver, three tons of bronze. They overwhelmingly give. They're overwhelmingly generous. And it comes at a personal cost. What cost are you willing to pay to see God's presence in the life of your friend, in the life of your neighborhood, in the life of your workplace, in the life of your family? What presence are you willing to, what, what price are you willing to pay to see God's presence in your own life as you continue to grow spiritually. Because you know, time by itself doesn't cause growth. It, it requires exposure to God's word, a belief and love for God's word, and obedience in God's word over time. That's the only way you grow. There is no worship 
without cost. There is no growth without cost. These former slaves, you know, just a couple chapters ago, it looked like there's no way that they're going any further in their relationship with God. It's all over. And yet here they are. They're growing. They're worshiping. There's excitement. There's joy in the camp because God's presence is coming. You know what? Your story can be a lot the same way. Maybe it feels like you've hit a roadblock. Maybe your growth has been stunted for a long time because you haven't really been exposed to God's word. You haven't really done God's word. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. Like the Israelites, you can now obediently respond to the word that we've been given. You understand, lost hope really can be restored. Well, hey, thanks for joining us this morning, and you don't want to miss next week as we wrap up this exciting series through the book of Exodus and hope for the 757. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you desire to be right in our midst permanently, that you reside within us, that God, there's nowhere we can go to escape from you. And so God, may we move in conjunction with you being the light that you've called us to be. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.